<laughs> right. You're there. Yeah, I'm there. Yeah, just watching the signals. Okay, great. I'm, I'm with you. And um, yeah, it's great to be here this morning. And uh, yeah, what a delightful morning, crisp and clear. And I actually managed to drive all the way here without stopping at a traffic light, which doesn't mean I went through a red one, but it meant by the time I got to them all, they were all green. And so that's something like 15 traffic lights in the space of three miles, which I think is quite impressive. And so we're, here we are this morning sharing again from the, the book of Ephesians. This is the second part in our mini-series of People Prepared, uh, based on three of Paul's prayers in this book of Ephesians. Last week, Barney was sharing on loving God, and this week we're sharing on loving one another. If you have a Bible um, and you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 3, that would be great. It will also come up on the screen as well. And we're just going to just read that prayer just to, to set the scene as we dig into this message uh, today. So Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You may have another version, and that's okay. So for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. You may need that today in these present circumstances, and strengthening even this morning as we're sharing together so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Take hold of that one before we go any further. God wants you to be filled with himself this morning. He wants us together to be filled with himself, to know that fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is a great prayer. And the problem is that so often we take this prayer personally, and there's a, a place for that, but we, we make it very personal. It's about me and Jesus. It's about how much he loves me, the height and the length and the depth and the breadth of that love. And we, we rejoice in that, and there is a place for that. But I want to suggest to you that the prayer is much, much bigger than that. Remember, we're talking about praying for one another. So it's not just about me. It's about the family of God. It's about my brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And one of the things to note about this prayer right at the very beginning, indeed to note about Ephesians itself, is it's very Trinitarian. It's about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's about this community that is God, that is love. And that is where we get our sense of the knowledge of God's love, that he is a God who has loved from all eternity. He didn't create us in order that he might love us. He was already a loving community of being. And so this is a Trinitarian prayer. And as you look at this prayer, you'll see Father, Son, and Spirit referenced in it. And, uh, and I just want to ask you a question this morning. How God-shaped is your praying? Good, healthy praying is centered in God, and it's centered in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
It's a, it's a big prayer. It's a massive prayer. It's, it's big in resources and it's big in scope. We read the, there that it is based on the, the riches of his glory, his wonderful riches in glory. It is based on the fact that he gives us his spirit and we are strengthened by the spirit in order that Christ may dwell in us. And uh, the, the thought here is that he might be at home with us. Now, this may sound a little bit strange to us that Paul is praying in this way because surely if we've come to know Christ, Christ is in our hearts. And sometimes as Christians, we refer to perhaps becoming Christian as receiving Christ into our heart. This is probably the only reference in Scripture where you can get anything like that. And yes, Jesus does come into our lives when we come to know him, but he can come in greater measures. There can be a greater awareness of Christ in our hearts as we grow and as we mature in him, as we make space for him. We could put it like this. There are different rooms in our lives that he, he wants to enter and to fill up. And so Paul's prayer is that we might have Christ fully in each area of our lives, fully dwelling within us. So that Christ may dwell in us, that he might fully reside in us, that we might be his habitation, that he might feel at home within us. And I, I just want to ask you, I want to throw that out to you this morning. Maybe you desire to know more of Christ. And I want to ask you the question, how are you making him more welcome in your life? How are you giving him space within your life? And this, he says here that you may, you may know the love of God. And so his desire is that they individually and they corporately should know this magnificent love of God in Jesus Christ, which actually, he says, surpasses knowledge. So he's, asking, he's saying we can know what, in one sense, seems to be unknowable. And yet, in actual fact, his prayer is suggesting that it can be an experiential reality. And so that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. So that not just you as an individual, but we together might truly be God's habitation of the Spirit and filled with his fullness. And there's a, a dynamic here for us as God's people, as the church, to, to keep pressing into more of the presence and the fullness of God. It's interesting to notice something of the differences between the prayer that Barney was sharing on last week and this prayer. So there's a, an emphasis on revelation in that first prayer, but in this one it's realization. It's a prayer for that experiential reality. Uh, it's, in the first prayer it's one of enlightenment, but in this prayer it's one of enablement. In the first prayer it's one of light, and in this one it's love and life. In the first prayer, it's knowing what you are. And in this prayer, it's being what you know. In the first prayer, it's knowing the power of God. And in this one, it's experiencing the fullness of God in our lives. In the first prayer, it's power working in us. And in this one, it is power working uh, through us. Sorry, first prayer, power working for us. And in this one, power working in us. In the first prayer, it's you in Christ. And in this one, it is Christ in in you. And each of the, in each of them, it's about fullness. So the church being the fullness of Christ, and here the church filled with all the fullness of God. So if you want to learn a bit more how to pray, I would encourage you to, to go to Paul's prayers, to read them, to reflect on them, and to, to make them a basis even for your own praying. 
So Paul, when he begins here in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, for this reason. Now, what reason is he talking about here? We could immediately go back into the immediately preceding verses, and there is perhaps a basis for that. He's talked about the, the manifold riches, of, manifold wisdom of God being made known uh, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places through the church. So there's a good reason we can, we can step back into the immediately preceding verses. But if you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, he also says, for this reason. And uh, actually, I, I believe, along with many commentators, that he, he goes off to share something about his own personal calling to share the gospel with the Gentiles to explain something in 3, verses 1 to 13. And the real reason is, packed, is back there, back in chapter 2 which is an, an amazing chapter. And when you read this chapter, you, you, he, he talks about having, in chapter 1, talked about God's eternal purpose in Christ to, to gather a people unto himself for his praise and his glory out of every tribe and tongue and nation. He, he talks about this eternal purpose. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning that we're not living in a chaotic world. We are living in a God-ordained world that God created and God has created mankind in his image and he's made us for a relationship with himself and God knows the end of the story and God has stepped into human history in Jesus because this is part of his eternal purpose and so in chapter one he talks about this eternal purpose that God has and we need to keep that perspective in our hearts and minds particularly when we when we find ourselves in critical situations like we are at this moment in time we are caught up in the eternal purpose of God and, and then in chapter 2, he, he talks about how everyone is, is dead in trespasses and sins, how you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and, and in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we, we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Yes, outside of Jesus, we are children of wrath, but God has come to us in Jesus in order to bring salvation, and so he talks about in verse 4 there, but God, but God, and I wonder if you've encountered the but God in your life, whether you have encountered the mercy and the grace of God in Jesus Christ, it's an amazing thing, so it changes the story, it can change your story as it has changed the story of those in this room and many others who are listening in today. But God, who being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So he talks about this amazing grace, this, this mercy and this amazing grace, this intervention that comes into our lives and brings us salvation. And how he says in verse 10, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You, my brother and my sister, are God's workmanship. You are special. You are his workmanship, and he's working on you like an artist works on that canvas. He's working on you like a sculptor works on a piece of stone. You are his workmanship, and you are precious, and he is shaping you. He has a purpose for you. 
And so we have this amazing sense of God's eternal purpose in Christ, how God has ordained to bring forth a family unto himself for his praise and glory, how, to, how he's going to rescue them out of the very depths of sin and unite them to himself. And, and then in verses 11 through to, to the end of the chapter, he begins to dig into something else, and he says, actually, it's not just the Jews, it's also the Gentiles. Now, we have to understand exactly what this meant in that generation uh, for, for the Jew to understand that a Gentile could be saved. This was something quite shocking. I mean, they wouldn't go near them. They wouldn't have anything to do them, do with them. And so, in this, these next few verses, saying that, you know, God is, is saving you and gathering you, in, you into this family, but it's not only the Jew, it's also the Gentile. And then he staggers them by saying, look, actually, I am going to make of these two one new man in Christ Jesus. Not two men, but one new man in Christ. And that was just totally radical. They Previously, they wouldn't have had any association with one another. We think of Peter, who said to Cornelius when he went to see him, that it was unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. They were viewed as unclean and sinful and treated with disdain. Uh, they, there was ill will and distrust as far as they were concerned. But God saves Jew and God saves Gentile. He had had his covenant with Israel, yes, in order that the gospel might go to the nations, that the Gentiles also might know him. And so God saves the Jew and the Gentile and he brings them together so that in Christ now there is neither Jew nor Greek. Neither Jew nor Gentile. So he's spoken to them about being brothers and sisters together in God's household. So at the end of that chapter, so then you are, verse 19, no longer strangers and aliens, but you are, you are fellow citizens with the saints uh, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Jew knew what it was to have the temple where God dwelt. But this was a new day and a new thing was taking place. And, and Jew and Gentile would now become, uh, be God's family and now become the habitation of God by the Spirit. Some staggering stuff that is going on here, which we could dig into in so many different ways. So, they're both brothers and sisters in the same family. They're both the dwelling place of God, the abode of God. Both have the same shared status as fellow citizens, and both have the same right of access into God's holy presence. I mean, that is massive. And perhaps it's kind of lost on us in our generation, but to go back and just to think about that history as we've just touched on it just very briefly, how that they were so separate from one another would have nothing to do with one another, how God reconciles them to himself, and he breaks down that middle wall of partition, and he joins them together as one body, as one new man in Christ Jesus. And, and that's massive, and we can say, well, okay, I can understand maybe God saving the Jew and them having their times together with God and God saving the Gentile and, their, Gentile and them having their times together with God. Uh, but surely it's got to wait to eternity for them to really enjoy fellowship with one another. And he says, no way. 
And and I believe that's why he prays at the end of of, uh, chapter 3 and verse 20, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Because in our human minds, to bring these two cultures together, to make them one family, to see them worshipping together, to see them living together, sharing a life together, doing a life together, seems an impossibility. But in God, all things are indeed possible. And so he prays to the one who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ever ask or think. He puts himself in the presence of God. I don't know whether you do that when you're in possible situations or whether you just mull over them in so many different ways and you found yourself in your own counsel of your own mind just going round in ever-decreasing circles that suck you in. I want to encourage you, if you find yourself in an impossible situation, in difficult circumstances at this moment in time, to put yourself in the presence of God, the eternal God, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the one who gives his Holy Spirit, to put yourself in his presence and seek his face. And so he prays that, he prays to the Father, he says, I, I pray here in these verses, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So there's an act of, of reverence there, of, of bowing in, in humility and in need. I, I bow my knees before the Father, the Father. God delights in us calling him Father. That's a precious thing. We see Jesus doing it, and that was kind of a shock to the Jews of the day, in the day in which he came. But he also tells us that we can call him Father. He said, when you pray, say, Our Father, who is in heaven. And, and Paul here prays to Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And commentators look at that in all sorts of different ways, and you can go and look at that in your own time. But in, in my own mind, I, I like to think of it as a family of God because he, it fits within the context of the Ephesians, the family of God that he redeems unto himself. And it is that family both on earth and in heaven. It is that family of Jew and Gentile on earth and Jew and Gentile in heaven. I mentioned last week that uh, you know, my mother has just passed away. And, but I, this, is the, this, is, this is the hope that I have and we have as Christians, that this is not the end of it all that there is also a family in heaven, and one day we'll go to see them. In fact, I remember just in the the two or three hours before uh, my mum went to be with the Lord, uh, something came into my mind, and some kind of prayer in some way just releasing mum, and in it saying, we'll follow you, we'll follow you, because that is the certainty of our faith. You can go, mum. It's okay. We'll follow you later. And, and that sense of, and then I walked downstairs and suddenly my phone went and I got this message, mum's, mum's, mum's just gone. And in many ways it was a shock, but it was like, actually not, because I, I just felt the Spirit speaking to me during those early morning hours. So this family that is both in heaven and on earth, that according to the riches of his grace... That according to to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. So he's praying for their individual strengthening. He says that you may be strengthened. And it may be that you need strengthening today. You need the strength of the Holy Spirit right where you are at this moment in time. You can receive that even as we're sharing in the Word of God. But he's praying that they individually may be strengthened in order that Christ may dwell in their hearts 
the place of their thinking, the place of their willing, the place of their, their feeling, where their, their source of life, to, for Christ to be at home among, in them, fully at home in them that they may be rooted and grounded in love. So that's his prayer. And I want to suggest to you that we, we, can't, we will find it difficult to do the next bit unless we can understand and receive this bit. It's difficult to lo- love others if we don't know God's love for ourselves. So first of all, that sense that you, that you may be strengthened, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. And then the second aspect of it is that that you together may have strength to comprehend with with all the saints the love of Christ so that together you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I want to suggest to you that that should be the ambition of every church, that we should know God's love for us personally, we should know God's love for us personally, corporately as a varied people gathered from all sorts of places and backgrounds and circumstances. That it is as we live in that love, we know the fullness of God in a very wonderful way. So knowing who they are and how God loves them. And knowing who others are and how God loves them. The wideness of God's mercy. And so he says this business of comprehending with all the saints, and there's just so much here you can dig into and pull out of and, and, and pull out and, 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 and dwell on, but we've only got a limited amount of time. So just for a brief moment of time here, to, it's, it's, it's not simply knowledge he's after, but experience. Experience in both the individual love and that corporate love together. And he describes it in these terms uh, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and, and the height and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Well, I mean, that, that's staggering. Uh, statements they are and you you get the sense in reading this prayer and praying it through that it kind of builds and it it kind of lists you as you pray this prayer as you begin to grasp something of what it's about so just to stop and think for a moment about the wideness of of God's love it's wide enough for all it was wide enough Paul is saying for the Jew and for the Gentile it is wide enough for, every, for everyone from every tribe and tongue and nation on the face of planet Earth. And we step over into Revelation and we see that in Revelation, before the throne of God, at the end of time, there are people who are redeemed from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, joining together, lifting up their voices in praise and worship to God. So it, there's a wideness to gathering people uh, from right across the globe, from, from the Jew and the Gentile, from every tribe and tongue and nation. And then it's long enough. It's God's love is everlasting. It was, it was born in eternity. It existed in eternity. And in love, he, he, he predestined Jesus to come to bring redemption and to, to, in order to bring us into his family. And so we think of this love as something that was born in eternity and goes on to eternity, a love that will not let us go. It's lo- Brothers and sisters, it's long enough. Sadly, we live in a world where people fall in love and they fall out of love, and there's a brokenness to the love of this world. But God's love isn't like that. He doesn't fall in love and out of love. His love is 
It's part of who he is. God is love, says Scripture. God's love is everlasting. It is from eternity to eternity, a love that will truly not let us go. And then we we think of the depth of his love. And in doing that, we think of how Jesus left the glory of heaven, all that he had with the Father and the Spirit from eternity, all that was pure and holy and full of blessing and delight. And he, he leaves that and he comes and takes on human flesh, as we've thought about recently in the Christmas story. And I, I've been staggered about that as Paramount and I have been praying and we've been sharing together and we've been meditating on it and, um, and just thinking of how if Jesus had come as, as kind of dazzling God into our midst, we would have been fried. If Jesus has come as dazzling God in our midst, we would, we would have, have run away and we would have turned our backs and gone away in fear. But he comes and he, in humility he takes on clothes like our own in order that he might approach us so that we can approach him. And as I've thought about that, I have been absolutely staggered. He was lowly and humble. And so he left the glory of heaven. So the depth of, uh, of, of this love in Jesus. So it's, and it's deep enough for the worst of sinners. You think of the man crucified with Jesus right there in those last moments. You might have thought for us humanly thinking, too late, brother, too late. You've left it too late. But he calls on, on Jesus in those moments and Jesus has mercy on him. And forgives him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. It's deep enough for the worst of sinners. doesn't matter who you are this morning or, or what you've done. The deepest and darkest of sins, God loves you and Jesus died for you. So that you could be forgiven, so that you could know this love and you could live in love and know a completely different type of life. doesn't matter how bad your sin, God's love is deep enough for you. Wow. I want you just to think about that for this moment. God's love is deep enough for you, wherever you are. And in that love, he he bids you come. And in that love, he says, I forgive you. Come into my family. It's just wonderful, this gospel, this good news, and it's high enough. He doesn't just save us or neutralize our account. I sometimes think of it in this way, you know, when I think of Jesus' his, his death and his, his resurrection and all that that means, both his life, his death, and his resurrection, that Jesus came to pay the price for our sins, for my sins. And, you know, it's like our, our account was millions of pounds in the debt, and there was no way our little penny was going to pay off anything, however many times we threw it into, into the account. And Jesus comes and he, he pays off that account. And, and, and he moves that minus account into a zero account. And, and that would have been enough for me to say, hallelujah, isn't that great? God has, uh, Jesus has died for all my sin. I'm forgiven. I'm clean. It's okay. But you know, at the back of our mind, and this is what I find so often when we do pastoral might, at the back of our minds, it's, it's, it's what if, what if, what if, 
I then go into the, into the black again, what, into the red again? What if I, I then build up an account of debt? What if, uh, what if, an, so you get all these what ifs come into our minds. And I want to tell you this, that Jesus is, has not only paid off that debt, debt so it's gone from ze- minus to zero, he's actually filled up the whole account with his righteousness so that we are clothed with righteousness divine. And that's how God looks at you and God looks at me uh, today and how he receives us. So it's high enough, this love of God, not just neutralizing our account, but filling it up with his righteousness. We're not simply forgiven sinners. We are saints. Hallelujah. And we are clothed in righteousness divine. So we get something of this magnificence of, of God's love and how that is for the Jew and how it is for the Gentile, how it is from, for people from every tribe and tongue and nation, from every strata of society, from every depth of sin, God's love is greater still. And this is what Paul is praying, that we not only personally but corporately may know this love and that we may live in this love that we may learn to love our brother, that we may learn to love our sister, who perhaps maybe naturally wouldn't come into our, our sphere of living. But in Jesus, suddenly, their brother, their sister, they're part of the family of God. I wonder if there are those that you find difficult to get on with within the life of the church. I wonder if there are those who you think, well, yeah, I can live within them in heaven, but I don't know about now. Well, God calls us to, to live with them now in order that his manifold wisdom might be revealed to principalities and powers through the church. Let me just close with some, some practical things in thinking about this prayer of Paul's. So there must be then a willingness to, to welcome one another as Christ does us. No matter the color of skin, no matter our education, no matter our status, our abilities, where we come from in society, that, that willingness to say, you're my brother, you're my sister, I'll welcome you. A willingness to be a mercy giver. And sometimes we find this a challenge, don't we? This is where forgiveness comes in. Because we, we want to hold out against one another at times and say, well, he doesn't, need, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Let him, let him just feel it or her feel it for a moment in time. But it is a willingness to be a mercy giver, to forgive and to forgive again. And as Christ said, to forgive 70 times 7. It's a willingness, too, to be a, a grace giver. Grace always gives space. It's not demanding. It's space to grow. It's space to mature in Christ. It's easy to look at somebody and be judgmental of them, and they they may not be as far down the road as you are. It's a willingness to to bear one another's burdens, to feel the burden of another, and to to bear it and to carry it with them together. A willingness to, to be an encourager and an enabler. It's a willingness here, particularly, to to pray for one another, to lift up my brother, my sister my brothers and sisters, together in prayer before our Father in heaven and hold them in his presence and pray for them and their needs and their particular situations and circumstances. And so, in closing, I want to pray this prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you uh, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of that love, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.